You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? It's good to see you. In the Gospel according to John, among many other features, John uses temple imagery to help him say what he wants to say about Jesus. Temple imagery in John. That's what I'd like to think about with you for a few moments this morning. Temple imagery, ideas and pictures drawn from the story of the Jewish temple that John picks up and runs with as he's telling the story of Jesus. And we'll focus in particular on John 14, 1 to 4, but it will take us a little while to get there. Uh, But after some background work, hopefully we'll be able to approach this text with fresh eyes. I wonder, do you ever dream about a forever home? It's an expression you might hear on Grand Designs, on Escape to the Country, or one of those excellent TV shows. Um, It seems like a good number of people dream about a forever home. We live out in the Yorkshire Dales, and property is quite difficult out there. It's difficult everywhere, really, isn't it? Uh, People are saying that the dividing line for coming generations, separating rich from poor, essentially, will be the line between those who own property and those who don't. I think, uh, for me, this would make a good forever home. (laughs) This is the home next door to the Jonas Centre where we work. And the story goes back to a time when this property and the Jonas Centre as it now is was all one estate. And it was owned by a Christian couple. And they decided to use this amazing estate as a resource for the church. That would be a fine forever home for me. It's on the market again at the minute, as you can see. Um, It's a beautiful property. I think we could really bless the church (laughs) across rural North Yorkshire from this property. Uh, Redmire, Wensleydale, North Yorkshire, and the ends of the earth. (laughs) I've dreamt up a whole life and ministry around this dream forever home. (laughs) Friends, it's a good job our neighbours don't own any cows. Otherwise, I would have to worry about coveting my neighbour's ox as well as his house. (laughs) Uh, That's a Bible nerd joke. (laughs) But the whole language of a forever home masks the fleeting impermanence of life, doesn't it? The whole language of a forever home, it masks the fleeting impermanence of life the mystery of life, the ungraspable nature of living. We have friends in their 90s who retired to the most beautiful home in a village just up the hill from from where we are. And for health reasons, they've had to move back to be closer to family. And they wanted their children to to keep their beautiful home in the Dales. But the children used to go there for holidays, you know, when when they were kids. And so they're just going to sell it and use the money for something else. Anyway, my generation seems to have um, somewhat abandoned the whole idea of a forever home. And this is more what we're into, living big in a tiny house. Have you seen this? This whole movement of people creating tiny houses, often on the back of, of trailers so that they can get around planning regs. You take your, kind of, your house deposit that you would have used for a mortgage, and instead of, instead of committing to that, you, you set yourself up a tiny house. Super eco-friendly, super compact. 
you kind of just park it on some unsuspecting family member's garden or something, and away you go, away you go, free and easy. It's a win for you, for the planet, for your independence, for your atomized fluidity. Maybe that's too harsh. Maybe it's just a necessity, necessity doing its thing. I don't know if you saw this guy's approach. Um, <laughs> working in London, and all the news articles say that he's living in a skip, which I think is just not a fair representation of the situation. He's living in a shed built on top of a skip. <laughs> in all of this, we're reminded of the very real significance of our homes, aren't we? How do you feel about your home? How do you feel about your house? Um, we're getting a bit claustrophobic in a minute. We have a little tiny cottage and just had a kid, and when you have a kid, there's just stuff everywhere, isn't there? Um, I wonder how you feel about your, your home. We're reminded of the very powerful significance of, of where we live. Here in York, a fantastic organization called Restore, who recognize the significance of having a good place to live. And yet, even there, look at how they frame what they do, the excellent work they do. It's giving more than a home because it takes more than providing a home to transform a life. And so with all of that being said, come with me to, to the start of John's Gospel. And we read this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then a few verses later, verse 14, we read that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And the phrase made his dwelling among us or dwelt with us or made his home with us, well, friends, it's temple language. It's temple language. It refers to the tabernacle, that sacred tent that preceded the temple. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, we could say. Pitched his tent with us. It's as if John, at the very beginning of his account of Jesus, is picking up on Old Testament temple language as he introduces who Jesus is. You might think back to the psalmist's delight in God's dwelling place. Psalm 84, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. Or Psalm 27, one thing I have asked of the Lord this is what I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Temple language, the language of, of dwelling places, right here at the start of John's gospel as John introduces the person of Jesus. And more than just the language of, of dwelling, John seems to be connecting Jesus to the whole history of the temple. So before we go any further, a potted history of the temple. God is not contingent on creation. Everything is contingent on God. He made everything. God is eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he creates by his powerful word. He speaks and there is. And God speaks into life his image bearers human beings and he puts them in a beautiful abundant and engaging place to work in relationship with himself but their rebellion and the holiness of God create a situation of separation discord and distance 
between God and his place and his image bearers and where they are. And this is just the first few pages of the Bible, isn't it, friends? But it's clear from the very beginning that God intends to dwell with his image bearers, with his people. And then God works through a family to create a people set apart as the focal point of his desire to dwell with us again. And this this family grows into a large people group, enslaved by the superpower of the day, and yet freed by God through his servant Moses. And this people group set out once again towards a promised land where God would dwell with his people. But even before the promised land, God intends to dwell with his people. So he provides for them a kind of sacred tent, the tabernacle. And Moses receives very particular instructions about this this tent. If you've read the second half of the book of Exodus, the slightly less Hollywood-friendly half, you'll you'll know how particular the instructions for for the tabernacle are. And through this this sacred tent, as God's people are on the move, God dwells with his people. Even before they get to the promised land. Just notice, friends, let's pause here for a moment. God dwells with his people on the way. God dwelling with his people again doesn't have to wait for the perfect end point. God so intends to dwell with us that he makes a way to dwell with us even through the wilderness. And through this sacred tent, God dwells with his people. In particular, it's almost as if this tent is a kind of focal point of God's dwelling with his people. Of Moses, it said that that Moses spoke to God face to face like a man speaks to his friend in the tabernacle. So even on the way to the promised land, in the wilderness, in the wandering God is speaking, God is coming down to meet with his people. But the chosen people are not nomadic forever. Eventually they they do enter the promised land and they receive a king, King David, and he expresses his desire to build a kind of stone version of the tabernacle, a temple in Jerusalem. And his son, King Solomon, builds that first temple for God's people, a tabernacle of stone, again under strict instructions from the Lord. And so the temple takes the place of the tabernacle. God's presence fills the temple as it did the tabernacle in a tangible cloud of mist. And as with the tabernacle tent, so with the temple, there is process and personnel associated with these special places. Process and personnel. A whole system of service and sacrifice making it possible for holy God to dwell with imperfect people. Nick Moore summarizes the whole system, emphasizes God's utter holiness and separation, and simultaneously the possibility of mediation, atonement for sin, and access for God's people, despite their sinfulness and impurity. But then disaster. Solomon's temple is destroyed by the invading Babylonians, and this chosen people are taken off into exile away from the temple, and it's years and years until some of them can come back, return from exile, and rebuild the temple. And as the Old Testament comes to its chronological end, in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those who saw the first temple weep 
as they see the second temple being built. Because it's just not a patch on the first one. There's a heavy question thick in the air at the end of the Old Testament narrative. As thick as the cloud of God's presence that used to rest on the temple. It's a nostalgic question of longing and hope. How will God dwell with us again? Now the temple loses none of its significance for the Jewish people in the last few centuries before Christ and it regains some of its splendor, some of its grandeur by the time of Jesus because Herod the Great goes about very significant refurbishment, rebuilding of the temple. He starts that in about 19 BC and uh, in John chapter 2 we read about the 46 years that that building work had been going on for at the time of Jesus. And uh, this is a very grand temple, a very um, impressive temple, the temple that Jesus would have come to. But friends, grandeur was no substitute for glory. And all kinds of people groups had their temples, but they didn't necessarily have the presence of the Lord. And then back to John. We open John. This is this story of the temple this history of the temple we open john and we read in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us and it seems like right at the beginning there john is is claiming something about jesus that god has come to dwell with us again that there's a new kind of temple now and it's worth saying from this point in John, there's a whole spectrum of minimal to maximal readings of this temple theme in John's gospel. So there are some who will see temple resonance, temple themes, you know, on every page of John's gospel, and they absolutely love it. Um, and then there are some who are a bit more cautious, and they recognize that it's a significant theme, but they want to be really, really sure that, you know, John really was um, referring to the temple at certain points. And uh, to be honest, I'm a bit more on the maximalist end than on the minimalist end. Uh, what I'm about to share follows quite closely the work of a, of a scholar called Mary Colo. So what we're going to do is we're just going to um, look at two other places in John's Gospel where I think there is significant temple imagery at work, where the temple's playing a really significant part in what John is trying to say about Jesus and about what Jesus came to do and the significance of his life and death and resurrection and, and what that all means for the disciples and what it all means for us. Two other places in John. So first of all, John chapter two. I'll read for us. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple 
and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. As with John 1.14, so now John 2.21, Jesus is, is, is being associated very closely with the temple. John is making a claim about the person or even the very body in this case of Jesus as a new kind of tabernacle, a new kind of temple. Jesus takes the temple and, and kind of uses it as a, as a metaphor for his own body. The temple he had spoken of was his body. Destroy this temple and in three days, it'll be back. Notice too that Jesus refers to the temple as my father's house. The temple is my father's house. And then he's talking about the temple of his own body being destroyed and raised up again. Almost as if he understands himself to be his father's house. There's only one other place in John where we read this same phrase, my father's house. And it's the text that we've been building up to. Uh, a very well-known text for many, often associated with, uh, with funeral liturgies, with end-of-life counselling. I'm hoping we can approach it with fresh eyes today. It's, it's John 14, 1 to 4. And in John 13, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet like they would in preparation for entering into the temple. He's also ex explains quite clearly that, that one of his disciples is going to betray him. And as well as that piece of troubling news, he's, he's told them an even more piece of troubling news that he's going to leave them and that where he's going, they can't come, at least not for now. And so, as we turn the page into John chapter 14, the disciples are in a state of, of, of anxiety. They have troubled hearts and it's those troubled hearts that, that Jesus is about to address. Sometimes God dwelling with us is troubling because we struggle to come to terms with God's way of doing things. We don't understand how God's distance, him going away from us, could potentially work for his closeness to us. Well, Jesus is going to comfort his disciples. It's like time stops when we get to the farewell discourse as it's known in John 14. And he draws them in close and he says this, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. Okay, there's a classic reading of this text, isn't there? Jesus is going to heaven between his ascension and his second coming or between his death and resurrection and he's going to prepare rooms for us in heaven. And then uh, he'll come back at his second coming or when you die and uh, you'll receive your well-prepared room in heaven. 
So don't worry, because there's plenty of them as well. There's, there's many of them. There's enough to go around. So, um, yeah. Does that sound familiar? I used to think that's what this text was saying. Um, I don't know, it might be. We, we could be wrong, but bear with me, bear with me. Even better, the old authorised version used the word mansions. Because mansions in, um, in Old English just used to mean rooms. And mansions in the text here is kind of a transliteration from the Latin Vulgate. In my father's house are many mansions. But now in modern English, mansions means kind of, you know, grand country houses, doesn't it? So there's at least a well-prepared room in heaven for you. Maybe even a mansion. Um, yeah, so. Hmm. What do we think of that? Friends, notice the setting. It's not that the disciples are about to die and need reassurance that there is a place in heaven for them. Neither is it the case that the disciples have have lost loved ones and and need reassurance that the loved ones have a room in heaven. That's, That's not the setting, is it? The situation is that Jesus is going away alone and the disciples are distressed about that. This is really important, isn't it, when it comes to the setting of this text. It is not that the disciples face death and wonder at their eternal resting place as we might. It is that the disciples face the loss of Jesus and with him their hopes and dreams for the here and now. It's Jesus who is going away. That's the troubling news. He's told them they can't go with him. He's told them that one of them's going to betray him. That's what they're worried about, not what happens to them after they die and whether or not there's space in heaven for them. So straight away, the classic kind of reading of this text starts to feel like an imposition rather than an exposition, doesn't it? Just by paying attention to you know, the basic details of the story. So let's just dig a bit more deeply and examine what Jesus might mean here. And we'll take four phrases in the text, one at a time, and, uh, and think about what this text might be talking about. But my intention is not at all to leave you bereft of hope, to take away from you something that you are looking forward to. Jesus has something better for you than what you thought. So first of all, my father's house. John has already established a symbolic meaning to this phrase in John chapter 2. And I think what's happening here is that in John chapter 14, John's giving us a callback to this phrase in John chapter 2. Remember, there are only these two instances of this phrase in John's gospel. And in John chapter 2, the Father's house, the temple, what was it associated with? Jesus' body, absolutely. And apart from that phrase itself, the context is similar too. Back in John chapter 2, Jesus was talking about his death and resurrection when he spoke of the temple of his body being destroyed, wasn't he? And once again here in, in John 14, his death and resurrection are very much in view. The Father's house is about to be destroyed. My father's house in John 14, it's a callback to the, to the move John made to claim temple significance for the very body of Jesus in relation to his death and resurrection. 
What if Jesus is once again speaking about the temple of his body here in John chapter 14? Let's keep running with this. Secondly, in my father's house are many rooms or many dwelling places. So if, if the father's house is the body of Jesus, where are the many rooms? Not in heaven per se. They are in the body of Jesus. Perhaps Jesus is saying something like, there's plenty of room in me for you. So don't worry. There's plenty of room in me for you. Thirdly, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus has been talking about going quite a bit. Peter has asked him in 1336, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus gives a typically reframing answer, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. Where is Jesus going? Heaven? Remember the context. Where is Jesus about to go? Betrayed and alone. Maybe he's talking about the cross. And what's the preparatory work that Jesus is yet to do? It's not renovation work in heaven, friends. What needs preparing in heaven, if that were the case? It's heaven. There is a heavenly temple interpretation of my father's house here. I need to be clear about that. And it has strong support whereby my father's house might be referring to a heavenly temple. But even the people who hold to that interpretation of my father's house here will still recognize that the place Jesus is talking about here is it's the cross, isn't it? It's the cross. The preparatory work Jesus is about to do is his sacrificial death on the cross where his body will be broken open by sin and death, perfectly prepared as the eternal dwelling place of his disciples. Notice too the rhetorical question. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? So Jesus is saying that he's already been speaking to them about this. He's already told them what he's telling them now. But he hasn't already told them about preparing rooms in heaven for them. What he has already told them about is the cross. Jesus goes. He goes to the cross. And Jesus goes to prepare a place for them. He goes to the cross to prepare the Father's house of his body as the many-roomed dwelling place of the disciples. And there's plenty of room in that Father's house, in the body of Jesus, for you. Don't worry, it's going to be okay. Yes, I'm leaving. But believe in God, believe also in me. There's plenty of room in me for you. And something is about to happen that will open the way for us to be closer than ever before. But notice, friends, for that to be the case, for Jesus and the disciples to be closer than ever before, Jesus is going away for a little while. God has been dwelling with the disciples, but the way of deepening that dwelling is its temporary suspension. The disciples have experienced God's presence in the presence of Jesus with them, haven't they? And now Jesus is helping them prepare for a time when they'll experience God's absence 
in the absence of Jesus with them. But more than that, a time is coming when they'll experience a new kind of what Mary Colo calls presence in absence. And that's what Jesus talks about next in the fourth of our little phrases, I will come again. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. What's Jesus talking about now? Is he talking about his second coming? I believe in the second coming of Jesus. I just don't think that's what this is talking about. Is he talking about his coming to them post-resurrection? Well, obviously the resurrection is really, really significant. But just think this through for a minute. If the reassurance Jesus is giving the disciples is that he's going to go away, die, and then be resurrected and come back to them, it's kind of a bit of a false hope because what happens after he's been with them for a while, post-resurrection, he goes away again. So <laughs> we'd just be left where we are now if what is being talked about here is Jesus' resurrection. The sense in which Jesus will come again after this preparatory work has been done, after this time of, of him going away, well, that's what the rest of chapter 14 and much of the farewell discourse unpacks. So we'll just look a little bit further down the chapter to dig into what, what I think John is talking about here, what I think Jesus is talking about, what the, the nature of his coming again, we could say. John 14, verse 15. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So a few things to notice. Notice that the Father will give another helper. So who was the first helper? Well, that's Jesus. And now the Father's gonna give another helper, Jesus being the first one. But then notice how Jesus concludes, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come again to you. So Jesus seems to be speaking of the coming of the second helper, the Holy Spirit, almost like his coming again. And it gets even richer, so we continue in chapter 14, look at verse 22. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And just as a quick aside, that's another good reason why this isn't talking about the second coming of Jesus, because when Christ comes at the parousia, that second coming, he will manifest himself universally, won't he? So, yeah. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. The father and the son are going to come to the disciples and make their home with the disciples. And it's the person of the Holy Spirit who acts as the agent of this mutual indwelling. So we carry on, verses 25 to 27, which are very similar to what we just read the time before in verses 15 to 17. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. 
Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Once again, Jesus is talking interchangeably about the coming of the Holy Spirit and his own ongoing relationship to the disciples. When he says, I will come again, he's talking about the filling of the Holy Spirit by whom the Father and the Son take up residence in us. Alan Kerr explains that the Holy Spirit is like a functional parallel to Jesus here. To have the Spirit is to have Jesus and the Father dwelling within. And Mary Colo talks about how the coming of the Holy Spirit resolves the tension of Jesus' presence in his absence. Presence in absence. So when Jesus says in John 14, 3, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. He's introducing the coming of the Holy Spirit, the one who will mediate Jesus' presence, even in his absence. Are you still with me? Okay, where have we been? We've got the Father's house, the body of Jesus, the many rooms, the dwelling places of the disciples in that very same body. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus' body prepared at the cross as the dwelling place of the disciples. And I will come again, the infilling of the second comforter, the Holy Spirit, by whom, through whom, the Father and the Son take up residence in us. And there's one more phrase, a fifth element to John 14, 2-3, which I think ties it all together. And for me, it's the, the simplest and the clearest indication of what Jesus is talking about. He says, I will take you to to myself. To myself. Not to heaven, not to a room where you can just be by yourself and shut out the world as much as we long for that at times. No, I'll take you to, to myself, Jesus says. Friends, Jesus is our forever home. In life, in death, and for all eternity. I really, really want God to provide a way for that ridiculous three million pound property that used to be owned by a Christian couple next door to the Jonah Center to be put back together with the Jonah Center and for it to be a fantastic resource for the church in the north. I really, really want that to happen. But Jesus is my forever home, so it's okay if that doesn't happen. I'd rather live in him forever than in Elm House because sooner or later that roof's going to need repairing and that's going to cost a bomb. (laughs) (laughs) Joking aside, we know those moments of God's seeming absence, don't we? The psalmist prays, I call out to you by day and you don't answer. By night, but I find no rest. And friends, sometimes it's not until Jesus seems to leave us for a little while that we realize everything he was doing for us, the peace, the joy, the love, the capacity that he was bringing to us, all of it was a benefit of his abiding with us and us in him. And then he's gone for just a little while and we have the opportunity to notice what we miss. And though we may kick and scream at the loss of the other things, we realize for everything Jesus was doing for us, it's Jesus we miss. I just want to be with you. 
And friends, here's the key here that we'll move into as we finish. Jesus' presence in absence is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' presence in absence is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that means that we therefore miss Jesus' in, Jesus presence in absence when we are separate from his people. Let me say that again, and then I'll show you where this is in the text. Jesus' presence in absence is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. And so that means that we miss Jesus' presence in absence when we separate ourselves off from his people. A few moments before, in chapter 13, Jesus had given his disciples a new commandment, that they are to love one another as he has loved them. Later in John 17, at the other end of the farewell discourse, Jesus prays that the same love that the Father and Son enjoy would be in us, even as they themselves are in us. And this is what happens as Jesus gives out his spirit from the cross. Filled by the spirit of Jesus, the Father and the Son come and make their home in us and we participate in their life, modeling ours after the sacrificial way of Jesus with love as, as the sacrifice of the self for the sake of the other. And we know God's presence in absence. Jesus comes again to dwell in the midst of his people. We know God's presence in absence not only in the private experience of the infilling of God's spirit, important as that is, but we know God's, God's presence in absence in the midst of, of the spirit-led, spirit-filled community, which exists on earth, as it were, suspended within the Trinity, another temple reality in Christ. Where's this in the text? Well, there's a subtle development, so I'm told, of the word house in the phrase my father's house. From its use in chapter two to its use here in chapter 14. We don't notice it in the English translations, but here's how you would notice it in English. The slight development could be represented by the difference in our English words between house and household. In John two, it's just my father's house. In John 14, it could very well be rendered my father's household. Alan Kerr again says, in 221 there has been a shift from the temple of Jerusalem, my father's house, to the temple as the body of Jesus. And now in John 14, two to three, there is this further shift to incorporate not only Jesus, but also the disciples as my father's family or my father's household. Mary Colo summarizes the phrase in my father's house and many dwellings is best understood within the context of the gospel to mean a series of interpersonal relationships made possible because of the indwelling of the father jesus and the holy spirit with the believer friends jesus has gone to a place where we could not follow and live he was utterly lost in absence at the cross so that our experience of absence need only bring us closer to God. His temple body has been broken open so that we can enter in. He comes to us as he did Thomas. Often we're full of doubt, we're full of fear, having separated ourselves off from others, isolated and alone. And he says, put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Stop doubting and believe. And as we climb in to him, baptized in the water and the blood, full of his spirit, part of his people, we together are his dwelling place on earth. So friends, I know God's presence in absence because I know you. May we find ourselves in him together today. Amen.